This season of What She Did Next is brought to you by Women's Agenda, a daily news publication for women. I just hope I inspire others, um, particularly women and women of colour, to, you know, this is our place and we see how toxic um, Parliament is at the moment, but a lot of workplaces are like that and we can change it. We need more women in these places. We need more women with lived experience um, to, you know, to tell these old blokes how to run this country in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind because that's what we do as women. We look after everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. The idea of running for office would have many of us running a mile, but the more women we have in our parliaments, the better things will be. My guest today is Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, and she's a passionate advocate for human rights, social justice, and the environment. She's also a proud Ganai Gundichimara and Japarang woman who takes inspiration from a long line of strong matriarchs in her family. In 2017, Lydia made history by becoming the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the Victorian Parliament. And in 2020, she made the leap to federal parliament as the first Aboriginal senator for Victoria. But Lydia's path into politics has not been typical. Growing up in public housing, she left school early to start working and her professional experience covers everything from Aboriginal services to running her own businesses. As an activist, Lydia spent years fighting the system from the outside. Now she's in the halls of power, determined to use her lived experience as a catalyst for change. I spoke to Lydia about making the move into politics, the hardest and most rewarding aspects of her work, what she hopes to achieve in her role as a senator, and why we need more women from diverse backgrounds in public office. She's an absolute powerhouse and the inspiration we all need this International Women's Day. So I hope you enjoy this very special episode with Senator Lydia Thorpe. So, Senator, thank you so much for your time today. I'm very keen to talk about your work in public office, but can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you? Well, thank you for having me first and foremost. I'm uh, standing on Wurundjeri country, uh, stolen land, never ceded. And I suppose uh, as a Gunai Gunduchamar and Japarang woman and being so closely connected to my country and my people and my culture, I've been very fortunate to grow up with uh, those values instilled in me from a very, very young age. Uh, my mum was 19 when she had me, single mum, you know, living in public housing. Uh, and I just found out this morning that she was actually pregnant with me when she was a receptionist at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, where I had to do a opening speech for uh, one of their se- seminars this morning. So I rang her early this morning and found that out. So uh, pretty much you know, pretty much how I began my life with my children was also uh, being pregnant, working in uh, an Aboriginal organisation at the time. So we're born into these places of of struggle and resistance. Uh, 
to you know all for the better betterment of our people so mm. uh back in those days in the 70s uh aboriginal services were set up in fitzroy to um because our people just weren't getting a service and in 73 the victorian aboriginal health service was set up my grandmother was very instrumental in that and i was one of the first babies there uh and it wasn't health from a colonial context it was health from a holistic context so right. you know people would come in with a maybe a you know a bruise on their knee but uh their whole well-being was taken care of it wasn't just putting a band-aid on and telling people you know they'll feel better later it was looking at people holistically um and that was something that I always learned that you know our land and our water and our culture are all part of our well-being uh which is which is new to the colonial context and that's been instilled in me from a very young age my first protest was 5 years of age wow. uh and yeah growing up saw a lot of violence a lot of family violence uh, and still trying to break the cycle, really, um, which, you know, it takes time, uh, it takes courage and it takes determination to maintain that, that fight, um, on all levels. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I have heard you describe yourself as a lifelong activist and, you know, you've said you were born into a very political family. I mean, what are some of the moments you can recall growing up that had a big impact on you? Well, Seeing how my grandmothers worked tirelessly for our people and they did it for no money, no program, no government funding. They did it because it was the right thing to do and if they didn't do it, who else was going to do it? And just uh, seeing their work over my time, my great-grandmother set up the Aboriginal Funeral Fund so that our people were buried with dignity and not as paupers in those days and just you know, just talking to people on the ground who are struggling and look, talking to them about what the solutions are and, and taking it from there and, um, taking on a leadership role wasn't something I ever thought I'd do because I look at my grandmothers and my mother particularly and see how they spoke and how they presented themselves and thought, there's no way I could ever be like them. <laughs> uh, until one day are? they, they, well, you know, I, I still have uh, big shoes to fill, I can tell you. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I know you, um, you left school at 14 to start work, which was pretty young. So why did you decide to leave school and, and what were you doing for work? Uh, I didn't have a very good experience at school. Uh, it was always a battle. It was always a fight. Um, I was very proud of who I was and what I stood for and you know, education in the school system wasn't um, up to date with the true history of this country and it still isn't. So, you know, you always live, I've always lived my life justifying who I am and where I come from and why that's important. And so my first job was at um, the Koori Information Centre in Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, uh, as, a, as a volunteer with my uncle Robbie Thorpe and I love that job. You know, I'd get paid every now and again, but uh, the, the learnings that I got from my uncle and from people who came in to uh, seek information about our history, uh, the other activists that came in, 
it, it's just memories and, and learnings that I'll, I'll never forget and I'll always take with me. Um, you know, so I spent, I think six to eight, nine months at that place. Um, in that time, I remember rocking up to work one morning and, and having seen coon sprayed across our, um, shop front window. Uh, so, you know, we, we didn't take government funding. Um, we just fought the, the fight to repay the rent. Uh, and then I went to the, uh, Fitzroy Stars Community Youth Club Gymnasium, the Aboriginal Community Youth Club Gymnasium, which was a, a baby of the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. And it was set up as a preventative measure for our young people, uh, who were on the streets and Uncle Jock Austin used to, get kids off the street to fight in the boxing ring and do some exercise. And so I became the office manager there and I loved it. I was there for a couple of years. Uh, and then when I fell pregnant at 17, I then went to work at Yapra Children's Services, which was an Aboriginal children's service. So I went to looking after kids and <laughs> learning about parenting whilst I was pregnant. Right. Uh, so yeah, all things that have made me who I am today. Mm. Well, your CV is one of the most extensive I've come across. <laughs> Prior to running for office, you'd done everything from running your own businesses to working in local government to leadership and advisory roles in the community sector. I mean, what are some of the roles from your earlier career that stand out for you as being the most formative or perhaps the most significant? Uh, I would have to say, uh, when I came back from maternity leave, uh, I've never been on maternity leave for very long because I get very bored. Mm -hmm. I know parenting is, um, a full-time job, but, uh, I made, um, that part of my children's life as well, my work, um, the same way as my, my mother did and, and my grandmother's. So they were always part of it. Um, I think my most memorable job in those days was working at the Victorian Aboriginal Funeral Service. I worked there for seven years and I um, worked with the families who were grieving and mourning the, the loss of their loved ones. And my role was to basically organise the funeral so that there was, um, you know, so that the burden wasn't on the family and that everything ran smoothly and and having to drive a, a morning car while people were grieving was one of the most um, honourable things I've ever had the, you know, I can't say pleasure because it's, no. it's at a time where people are at their most vulnerable and, and, you know, a really sad time. But I just, I felt privileged to be part of that family's journey at that time and, and, to be making it easier for their lives at that time. Mm. Um, it did, it did numb me. Um, which, you know, I still have to deal with even today. It's from, um, you know, all the trauma and, and the oppression that our people face in this country and then our own personal experiences. It can have a numbing effect after a while. So, right. um, it kind of helps sometimes when you're in jobs like this today. Uh, but you know, we have to always be aware of, um, how these experiences also affect us in our lives. Yeah. 
Um, and you also ran several businesses over the years. I mean, what kind of businesses were they and, and what did you learn from being a businesswoman? Uh, well, I first set up a, an events management uh, business uh, because I just loved organising things. I'm the oldest of 90 cousins in my family. I always had to, you know, I was given the role of organising the parties and being the, you know, the the king of the parties, they used to call me, and party wouldn't happen unless I had to, you know, unless I organised it. So <laughs> I loved organising things. Uh, so I thought, why not, you know, make some money out of it because I, I wasn't working anywhere else at the time. And I organised a, a number of welcome baby to country ceremonies for childcare services and kindergartens in East Gippsland. Right. Did about 150 young people and their families, which was an incredible experience to mm. see young people, you know, um, from community, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids coming together to learn about land and water and wildlife and the importance of that and their role in protecting that, um, you know, like I'm talking four and five year olds get it, yeah. and we have a we have a government who don't get it. So I'd love to go yes. back to those kids and <laughs> you know see if they can be an advisory panel to the current government because they they were just incredible. And to see a three year old fist pump when they get a um, a an official welcome to country certificate from signed by elders and their first pair of clapsticks and a native tree from the country that they're living on, fist pumping three-year-olds because they felt so special and they felt uh, part of the country. They mm. felt part of what we're doing and what we're about and that's that's what it should be about. Everyone can benefit. And on top of the many roles and businesses you've had, you, you did also decide to go to uni as an adult, which is no small feat when you're also juggling work and family. So what prompted you to study later in life and, and how did it benefit you? Look, I only did it because I, I wanted a white man's piece of paper. I, I was told that, you know, my, my dad used to say to me, I'd end up a lollipop lady. And I said, what's wrong with that? You know, we get to talk to kids. And I just had a lot of pressure from a lot of people saying, you need to get a degree in something. Um, so I, I did. Um, I struggled through it because I left school at 14. So I didn't know how to write a, an essay. Um, so it was really difficult to go back after so long. Uh, but I had a lot of support. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah. And I now have a certificate that tells me that I have a degree, but I think the best degree I've ever had in my life is my degree of life. Mm. Uh, and that's what a lot of academics miss out on these days. And it's such an important part of uh, who we are and how we connect to people. Yeah. I mean, you were studying things you were interested in. I guess you did a diploma in community development. Is that right? And later yeah. public sector management. That's right. That's right. And the community development course at Swinburne was was deadly because it was amongst other mob, and we talk about great ideas, and you know, it was just it was just a structure around um, how we go about our normal business. Uh, and then my degree was in is in public policy, uh, and guess what? I'm in public policy. <laughs> so yeah, I it's all kind of 
fit in nicely and not, it hasn't been, um, purpose. You know, I haven't said, this is my, my plan in life and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. It's, it just happened. In 2017, life took another turn for you. You decided to run as a Greens candidate in the Northcote by-election and you made history by becoming the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the Victorian Parliament. So firstly, how did the idea of throwing your hat in the ring come about and how did you know where to begin in terms of running for office? I had no idea. <laughs> um, and it was it was basically because... I'd had enough. I'd been outspoken for so long. Um, I had Labor come and approach me to run for them. And then I realized, oh, maybe I could do this if Labor are knocking on the door. Uh, and then, um, an old mate of mine, uh, Tim Bull became the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in Victoria for the Liberal Party. Well, he's a national party member. And we played footy netball at the same club in Lake Entrance. And I said to him, Tim, how the hell did you become the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs? He said, I don't know, but I am. What do you want me to do? <laughs> and I said, mate, if you can do that, I can do that. And <laughs> it kind of inspired me to, yeah, go that, that extra step further. Um, so I went for dinner with Labor and you know, flirted around with them for a little while and then looked into them a little bit more and realised that wasn't a place where I, I want to be or represent. Mm. Um, and then I was a chairperson of the uh, Victorian NAIDOC committee and at our NAIDOC march, our annual march, this politician rocks up and we don't have politicians coming to our rallies very often uh, and that politician was Alex Patel from the Greens who I had never known of before. And I wanted to know who she was turning up at our rally and I was, I was just impressed. I just connected with her immediately. Uh, and she said, you know, you should think about the Greens. And I said, Oh, I don't, you know, it's against my religion to join any political party in this place. It's all part of the colonial project. Why do I want to entertain that? And so I then, I attended the national conference of the Greens just as an observer. Right. And I met a lot of um, good people and, and Aboriginal people who are part of the, the party and I just said, all right, this this could be a nice home for me but we have to decolonise the Greens a bit um, <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's the journey I've taken them on and they've been very receptive to that. Their, their values are around grassroots democracy, looking after country. You know, I think they've taken a lot of their values from us anyway. Mm. But yeah, that's how I got into it. I ran in Northcote, had no idea what I was doing. Um, it just went along for the ride. I was told that we wouldn't win. So I thought, okay, well, that sounds pretty safe for me. Uh, then had an anxiety attack when they told me that we had one. I said, you didn't prepare me for this. What, what do I do now? Yeah, right. And they just threw me out there to the wolves and here I am. I, I'm, I loved it. I loved it. I will um, cherish that experience forever. Um, lots of support again and, yeah, what an experience to run in a campaign. Um, the adrenaline from that 
is is amazing. Mm. So and try um, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know there are groups like Emily's List, and I think you might have attended some of their meetings. And you know, there's groups like Women for Election Australia, which provide training and support for women to learn how to run for office. I mean, in your experience, would you know, are those sort of groups the best place to start if you're interested in making the leap to politics? Or, I mean, what was most helpful for you when you were learning the ropes very quickly about things like pre-selection or campaigning? Um, just talking to people, um, asking lots of questions. I mean, I ran in a pre-selection and I had no idea the policies of the Greens. I just made them up from a blackfellas perspective and they were all right, it seemed. So um, running in the pre-selection, I learned a lot and just reaching out to people from all parties. You know, I I had a chat with Jeff Kennett, believe it or not, because right. he was one of the people who reached out to me and thanked me, um, or sorry, congratulated me for winning Northgate. And when I lost Northgate, I rang him up and I said, all right, let's have that coffee now. Um, I'm interested to hear your views on, on where I should go next. So you have to... It's it's about talking to people and hearing different views, regardless of whether you like their party or not. There's you know there's still good people in these parties, and um, they're always or the people I speak to are always available to have a chat. Mm. Well, in 2020, you took it to another level. You were selected by the Greens to fill the Senate vacancy left by Richard Di Natale's resignation. And in that moment, you became the first Aboriginal woman to represent Victoria in the Senate. And you're also the Greens' first Aboriginal senator. And you really made your mark from your first day in office when you walked into Parliament with your fist raised, you were cloaked in possum skins, and you carried a message stick bearing a mark for each of the 441 First Nations people who've died in custody since the Royal Commission 30 years ago. What did that moment mean to you and, and how did it feel walking into the Senate chamber that day? Uh, well, the night before I was, um, I was nervous uh, and I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, but then when I went to, I started off at the Aboriginal em- uh, tent embassy and was welcomed by the traditional owners and, and activists that I've been growing up with all my life. Uh, that took away every fear I had. It, it gave me strength. It empowered me. So by the time I was ready to walk in, I was, I was walking in that place like I owned it. Um, I had the permission from the, the traditional owners. I had the message stick, uh, which was a, you know, a powerful message about what I, uh, will continue to fight for. Um, and my possum skin cloak was given to me during the Northcote election because of family violence and my experience of family violence. And the possum skin cloak was given to me for protection. Um, so I walked in with my cloak to protect me, uh, and I had Wurundjeri feathers on, um, because I'm working on their country. So culturally I was strong. I was mentally strong. Um, and it was an incredible, incredible experience. I only thought about putting my fist up the night before, uh, because I just felt awkward about swearing my allegiance to the Queen. Yes, 
I, I, it, it is awkward, you know, um, that, that the whole colonial project has caused so much harm to our people and to then swear allegiance to the, you know, the head, uh, who's responsible for that oppression and, and genocide I'm about to swear allegiance to. So I needed to be protected and I needed the backing of my people and I got that. Mm. And that gave me the confidence to go in there and, and do that. Freak my staff out when I text them uh, the next morning <laughs> saying, good morning, everybody, just to let you know I'm putting my fist up today. And they went into absolute meltdown panic mode. Oh, really? Um, because we didn't know what it would mean. Like I could have been thrown out of the chamber. Who knows? We didn't know the little legalities around that. But anyway, I made it through. Yes. <laughs> um, and it was powerful and, and it was meant to be. And I just hope I inspire others, um, particularly women and women of colour to, you know, this is our place and we see how toxic um, Parliament is at the moment, but a lot of workplaces are like that and mm. we can change it. We need more women in these places. We need more women with lived experience um, to, you know, to tell these old blokes uh <laughs> how to run this country in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind because that's what we do as women. We look after everybody. Yeah, and that diversity is so important and it's definitely, you know, I think incrementally we're seeing steps to improving, yeah, the the range of faces that we're seeing in the top levels of government. But, um, you know, I think we definitely need more women, particularly and women of colour. You know, your path into politics has not been typical, but that's what we, we need to see more of. I mean, how do you think your background has prepared you for public office and shaped you as a leader? Um, well, I think that lived experience. So when they talk about family violence in that chamber, I know what it's like. When they talk about poverty in that chamber, I know what that's like, uh, racism, you know, being a woman, being a mum, being a grandmother. Um, it's all lived experience, housing, public housing. You know, these people read a brief about it. These people go to uni and, and learn of ways to speak about it. But unless you've lived it, you don't know. Um, and you certainly can't come up with the solutions if you haven't lived it. So I think, you know, yes, the degree helped me in terms of the um, white fella's way of doing things, but my lived experience is what I think is is what I bring to that place. And people listen because these people are so wrapped up in their privilege bubble that they don't get to speak to real people all the time and to have someone that's, you know, speaking from grassroots in there um, kind of freaks them out a bit but at the same time you can see them really listening and I've had a lot of uh, MPs, senators uh, from all sides come and speak to me after I've spoken in, in the chamber and, and have said thank you for that, um, you know, you're doing a great job and, I mean, there's a few that will never come and say that to me <laughs> but you can't please everybody. No. <laughs> Um, and you oversee the portfolios of First Nations justice and sports and you've named a treaty with First Nations people as your top priority. Can you talk a bit about that and what you would like to see happen? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a treaty, it's about bringing peace to this country. It's about having an identity for this country. Uh, 
you know, you ask a lot of Australian people, what is the identity of this country? And people really struggle with answering that. Uh, we are the oldest continuing living culture in the world. I think that's something to be proud of and something to celebrate. Um, but unfortunately, this country imprisons in, in us more than anywhere else in the world. You know, we have a death in custody rate that is increasing every, every, you know, year. Uh, we have 20,000 Aboriginal children in out of home care across this country. Uh, and our, our, our land and our water is being absolutely destroyed. So it's, it's a long, hard battle. But if you've, if you, you know, we have a platform now, I think. Mm. Uh, and I think treaty is the mechanism that can bring this nation together. Uh, if we go back 20 years and look at the reconciliation consultation, it's the biggest consultation this country's ever seen with black and white communities to talk about reconciling as a nation. Uh, the outcome of that was that this country was too racist to reconcile. So, if we fast forward 20 years, I think that we're ready for that conversation um, again and I think w- that we have moved further to to be more open to that conversation and look at ways where not only to reconcile but how are we going to move this nation forward so that no one is left behind, so that we have equality um, you know, the inequality that goes on across this country, it, it shouldn't be happening here. Mm. Um, so a treaty is not just for Aboriginal people, it's for everybody. And I urge all people listening to this, um, have a think about what you want in a treaty uh, because it should be based around human rights, it should be based around our land and water rights, uh, and it should be based around making sure that no one goes hungry and, and no one goes without you know, a warm bed at night. Mm. And, I mean, you're obviously driven by a very strong sense of purpose in your role. And I know um, I've attended some Women for Election events myself, you know, hearing from women, who re- female politicians who really talk about, you know, their reason for going, entering public office is because they really want to drive change in some way. Um, as we touched on, you know, we're, we're constantly seeing these toxic stories in the news about the experiences of women in politics. I know you yourself had said even in your first few weeks, the misogyny, the sexism and racism was coming in thick and fast. How do you deal with that? And what drives you to keep going in the face of it? Um, it's not easy. I'll be, I'll be blatantly honest. Um, you know, we, we all put on these brave faces, us women. Uh, no one knows what we're dealing with inside. Uh, it's been, I must say, the most toxic workplace I've ever worked in. Um, but I ain't about to allow these people to represent us in this way without being challenged, uh, without being called out. Uh, and without having strong women around me and part of everything that I do because, uh, we need to make, we need to surround ourselves with, with good people. We need to surround ourselves, um, with strong women, um, and men. You know, I have an incredible partner, uh, who, you know, after four years of, 
being in a relationship has um, changed my view on men. I've only ever had toxic men in my life. So all of those things make a real difference and, you know, my children are happy. Uh, so you have to make sure that your private life, you fix that first and, and you surround yourself with strength and support because once you've got that, and that's not always going to be perfect, but it certainly helps you deal with um, going to work and having to deal with these toxic places. Mm. And what do you say to women who, you know, do feel this strong sense of purpose to drive change, but, you know, they see all of this going on in Parliament and they can't imagine themselves being there? I say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we have to feel like this. Um but take strength from it, take courage from it that this has happened to women and we know it's happened to a lot of women in this country, but if we don't continue to call it out and fight it and stand together, then we'll continue to have to deal with it. Um, we can change it. We can be the change. And the more women that get into these places of power, the more we're we're going to have a nation that is, you know, truly reflective of the values that it should be um, reflecting and that is respect for women, respect for our old people, respect for country uh, and, and just respect for each other. And what are some of the rewarding aspects of this job? I mean, we're constantly hearing about the challenges, but, you know, there must it obviously brings real opportunities. I mean, what would you highlight as, as a rewarding rewarding aspect? Well, if you spoke to my 13-year-old daughter, she would say, and she has, this hasn't happened, by the way, but she wants to be picked up by the Commonwealth car, the private car that we're all given <laughs> to take us to the airport. Uh, she wants me to rock up at her high school and pick her up in the car. <laughs> um, but that's not on the way of the airport, so I'm not sure how I'm going to win that one. Um, but aside from that, it's a platform. It's a platform to speak the truth. It's a platform for women to tell our story and it's a platform to be able to educate this country in a way that hasn't been educated before. Um, not, I mean, one thing that I love and the big difference between being in the lower house where I was in Northcote and now in the Senate is when you're in the lower house, you're dealing um, with people on the ground. So you get to yarn to like, hundreds of people, you get to go to school fates and you get to go to all these community events. As a senator, you don't. Um, but I must say the favourite part of my job is just talking to people and hearing people's stories and sharing stories and making sure that I'm on the right track when I go into my workplace to represent uh, Victoria. Mm. So that's, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to hear from you know, young schoolgirls saying that I'm inspiring them, that, you know, that's the most amazing feeling you could ever feel when you, you like I didn't even realise that, that there's all these young people out there that think that I'm inspiring. Um, so, you know, yeah. that's the difference we can make to young people's lives. Yeah. Well, you've been in your role as a federal MP for about six months now and you spent a year as a state MP. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about being in public office? 
Ah, that's a good question. What have I learnt? I've learnt that um, there's a lot of power in these jobs. Uh, I'm I'm being told all the time by my staff, um, you know, you can do this, you know, you can do that, and I say, what? <laughs> really? These people have got too much power and privilege. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's one thing I've learnt that politicians are this kind of. I don't know, untouchable kind of powerful person which doesn't sit comfortably with me. Um, that's something that I've had to struggle with because, you know, my elders are those people to me and when you see people in these positions that have no regard or respect for their power and position, it, it's it's very disappointing. Mm. Um, so that's certainly one thing I've learned. The other thing I've learned is um, being in the public eye is, is, you know, has its challenges. Going to the supermarket with my daughter and having daughter, mum and daughter time, and the people in the supermarket supermarket stopping me, and my daughter looking at me saying, "No, mum, you're not a senator now. You're you're my mum today." Um, so, you know, reality checks are really good, um, which we all need, but look, it's power and privilege that I think first and foremost is something that I've learnt, which I've never had, um, and my people have never had. And I want to share that. I want to share that with as many people as I possibly can, because, you know, I'm just the body. I'm just the, um, mechanism with the voice uh, and the position and I'm driven by my people and my communities. Mm. And what does a typical workday look like for you now? Well, it depends if I'm in parliament or not. So this week uh, it's a lot of um, speaking events, uh, particularly, you know, leading up to um, International Women's Day. Um, we're getting ready for parliament, even though that's in a couple of weeks. So it's strategizing, you know, some of our campaigns. Uh, when I'm in parliament, there's no time to breathe. Uh, things change by the minute. So you could be, you know, feeling really good about a bill and, and preparing a speech on the bill. And then the bill gets dropped off the list and the bill's gone and, some horrible bill comes up in place of it. So things change by the minute. Um, I have an incredible workforce um, that make me who I am too. You know, they make me look good on days where I feel like shit. Um, so that helps. But parliament, the parliamentary staff are incredible. The support from the security guards to the, to the people in the cafeteria um, the cleaners, they're, they're all brilliant. I, I mean, I stop and talk to them more than I stop and talk to the MPs because <laughs> I know I'm going to have more of a grassroots yarn with them. Yep. Um, but at the same time, MPs from and senators from different parties, you know, we also stop and have a chat and it's, it's amazing what you can get done outside the chamber. Um, that's something I've learnt very well. All right. And look, I know it's early days in your role, but you have been very active in that time. So what are you most proud of and what's next for you in 2021? The thing that I'm most proud of, I think, is um, being able to put things on the agenda 
which haven't been there. Uh, and you see the language starting to change in the chamber around truth-telling, around justice, around, um, you know, inequality. I'm really proud that I can keep pushing that, that agenda uh, and that communities support what I'm saying. I don't always say the right thing. I make mistakes and I get whacked a few times by mob. Um, but you've got to learn from that and you've got to expect that because we're not perfect either and we're going, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. Um, so I'm proud that I have that support, not just from Aboriginal community. I'm talking, you know, mainstream uh, in in all areas. Um, the, the support has just been incredible. Mm. Um, 2021, I really want to continue to push treaty. I think that that will bring a lot of healing to our people but also this nation. Um, and I think that the more people understand what treaty is, the more people will jump on board with it. Uh, 2021 will be interesting. I think that we'll have an election. Uh, so I hope that I maintain my seat. I don't want to be, you know, a one-hit wonder again like I was in state <laughs> politics. So this time I have to rely on the whole of Victoria to vote for me, not just Northgate. Um, so I really want a full term so I can, you know, dig my my teeth in and and get some real stuff done and bring a whole lot of new people with me. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've been taking brave leaps throughout your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? I have to say having my three kids, I've had them so far apart. I was 17 when I had my son who's turning 30 this year. Um, I've got a 20-year-old who's five months pregnant and I have a 13-year-old. So I've got them at all ages and stages and it's been a challenge but it's been the most amazing reward I could ever imagine in my life and now I have two granddaughters and a grandson on the way. Mm, Um, One thing my grandmother my great-grandmother always told me is never, ever forget where you come from. And that's where we've got to ensure that we take our families and our children with us on any journey we take. And I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? Uh, I would have to say my grandmothers and the matriarchs um, in my family. My mother at the moment is in court fighting for the Japarung trees. Um, you know, she's mid-60s. I thought that she could just relax now and not have to continue the fight, but she continues the fight and so does my nan who's at home. You know, she doesn't go out much anymore, but she's as sharp as they come and she rings me up and, you know, gives me advice and ideas and gives me a telling off every now and again. <laughs> but it's it's that. It's that stuff that nourishes me and um, and I want to do that for our younger generation and for any other woman that um, needs that inspiration or that yarn, I'm, I want to be available for them too. Mm. Well, if there is someone listening out there thinking they'd love to shake things up and make a big leap of their own, maybe they'd like to enter public office and drive some real change in this country, do you have any final tips for them? 
Uh, just be you. You don't have to be anybody else. You don't have to try and conform to a particular way. Be you. Um, yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. But that's life, right? And if we don't take the opportunities now, then when, when do we? And I think that this nation is changing for the better. Um, because more women are speaking up. So, you know, take the, take that leap and reach out to, to women to support you in that leap and reach out to me if you ever need to. But, you know, let's do this. Let's stand together in solidarity as women in this country. Um, let's get rid of these old white fellas in these places and make this country what it should be about. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Senator. I've loved chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Lydia Thorpe, Green Senator for Victoria, who you can find at the Australian Greens website at greens.org.au. We'll put the details in our show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe, and we are proud to be a part of the Women's Agenda Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.